Our scriptures today come from the Old and New Testaments, the first from 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Is not my house like this with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But the godless are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be picked up with the hand. To touch them, one uses an iron bar or the shaft of a spear, and they are entirely consumed in fire on the spot. Our second lesson from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. The same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe me. And his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and then went and threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. I have a confession to make, and the confession is that there have been times and seasons in my life when I have made it my spiritual practice, I'm being a little facetious here, to come home after a somewhat long and stressful day, plant myself in front of the TV, and turn on some sort of crime police detective show. For a long time, I was a law and order guy. You might remember the law and order series. I think it's still going on and on and on. 
which followed a basic formula. Some bad guy does a bad thing. The cops look for the bad guy. The cops find and arrest the bad guy. The lawyer, lawyers build a case against the bad guy. The judge and jury hear the case against the bad guy. The jury deliberates and announces their verdict. 90% of the time, the bad guy is found guilty and off the jail he goes. I love these kinds of shows. <laughs> I love them because I can sit and watch People solve a problem within the course of an hour. I love problems that can be fixed in an hour. I love these shows because I love to imagine that justice is that easy. Bad guy does bad thing. Good guys and gals find and convict bad guy. Bad guy goes to jail. I love thinking that life is that simple. That's why I enjoy the occasional Western. Likes of Will Kane, Wyatt Earp, Matt Dillon, Hopalong Cassidy, right into town. Square off against the bad guys, show down at the OK Corral, and it all gets sorted out. Good wins, bad loses. The guy with the star on his chest is still standing. And let's get something to eat. I want justice to look that easy, and I want life to be that simple. I suppose it is a longing we all have that the world would grow to be that simple and that justice would be brought about that easily. We all have in our minds some sense of right and wrong, and wouldn't the world be a better place if everybody just agreed with me? We all have a vision of what the world should look like and how justice should be served no matter how far away we might be from the circumstances of life, we all have a sense of who's good, who's bad. Like the story of the baseball umpire who was being heckled by a fan for his calls on balls and strikes, so finally at one point the umpire called time, climbed over the wall, walked up to the 30th row of the stand, sat down right next to the heckler. What are you doing, said the heckler. Evidently, said the umpire, you have a much better vantage point, so I'm calling the rest of the game from here. We all have a vision of what the world should look like, what are the balls and what are the strikes, and would that the world would agree with moi. Edward Hicks was an 18th century American Quaker and painted one of the great paintings of religious Americana, Peaceable Kingdom, is on the cover of your bulletin. Borrowing from the prophet Isaiah, the same verses that serve as the theme for our prophecy window up there in the south transept, the vision of the prophet where there will come a day when the lion shall lay down with the lamb and the child will play over the hole of the asp. So struck was Hicks by this vision, he painted it 60 different times, each depiction a little different. This particular one hangs in the National Gallery of Art, and not only do you see children and creatures dwelling together on the right, but on the left in the distance, you see William Penn making peace with the Lenape people, signing a treaty. We all have a vision for the way the world ought to be. So too for King David. At the end of his life, we have recorded in 2 Samuel his last words, the last oracle of the king, and the king dreams of the day when there will be a king that will rule justly and that the justly reign will be, quote, like the light of the morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on a grassy land. 
What a vision this king has. Ironically, however, it was this same king, King David, whose own reign was marred by injustice, his own injustice. The king has a vision for the way the world should be, and yet he was the one who prevented it from happening. Disloyal to his own people, unfaithful to his own principles, the king in his last days knows that there is good and bad, and that the good and bad reside not just out there, not just in the courtrooms of law and order, not just on the streets of Dodge City or Tombstone, but good and bad reside in here, inside the souls of every human being. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian dissident whose vision for a just society landed him in the gulag for a decade, understood the temptation to make ourselves, to make ourselves the good guys and those people the bad guys. If only there were evil people, he writes, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil, he continues, cuts through the heart of every human being. And who wants to destroy a piece of his own heart? I suppose is what Jesus was talking about when he told the story about the servant who was in debt to his master, 10,000 talents, which equates today to about a bajillion dollars. That's not really a number, but... Now, as it turns out, the servant is so out of touch with what he owes, he goes to the master to suggest a plan for him to pay it back. But unless the plan involves him robbing about 100 banks, there's just no way he's going to pay this debt back. Interesting, isn't it, how easily it is for us to minimize our own failings, our own debt. Somehow the guy on the news owes a lot more to society than I do. Amazingly, though, the master forgives him the billion. The master's form of justice is to forgive and give him another chance. So the servant takes his chance, stumbles upon a fellow servant who owes him a hundred bucks, and the indebted servant begs for mercy, but the redeemed servant, it's back to the old justice, blind to his own forgiven debt, he shakes down his friend and throws him into jail. Law and order. If you let them all get away with a little, they'll take a lot. God knows what he might do next. Give him enough rope, he'll hang him and me. So the old justice is served. I hate it when Jesus tells us these stories. It just so complicates things. It just messes with my law and order. It's just no way to put on a western. Suppose it was the same kind of story that Victor Hugo attempted to tell when he wrote Les Miserables, the story of the desperate man, Jean Valjean, who can't stand the sight of seeing his own family starve, steals a loaf of bread for his family and gets caught, and the justice is served. 19 years on the chain gang. Let them get away with a little, they'll take a lot. 19 years. And that's one form of justice. 
So they let him go after 19 years, and what does he do? He does just that. He takes a lot. Under the hospitality of a kind and gracious bishop, in the middle of the night, Valjean absconds with the silver and gets caught, and both silver and thief are brought before the bishop for justice to be served. But in the bishop's house, there's another justice. You left behind the candlesticks, the bishop says to Jean Valjean. And later, Jean Valjean, he says, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you, and I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Have you ever thought of justice as the purchase of souls? that at the end of the day, when we look at the bad and the good in the world, that what we're really looking at is a collection of souls. And not just a collection, but one soul at a time. You know, over my years, I've had to sit with enough parents whose children have gotten in trouble with the law. It's a terrible time when your child gets in trouble with the law. The justice system can be sometimes indifferent and sometimes unkind. And there's nothing more a parent wants when their child is in trouble with the law is for those who are sitting in the seat of judgment to see in their child a little bit of what they see in their child. Do you know what I mean by that? that at the end of the day, every person is somebody's child. And every child is a soul with some good and some bad and some hope. Which I suppose is what Jesus was after when he and Peter had that conversation about forgiveness. And Peter posits rather magnanimously, at least he thinks it's magnanimous, that wouldn't seven times be enough to forgive my brother or sister? For Peter, that's like a bajillion. But for Jesus, it's hardly a scratch. Jesus has a whole lot more hope than that. How about 77 times? because it's all about hope. The chance that a, a good soul might be redeemed. Oh, and it's a chance, it's a, it's a risk, but no less chancy and no less risky than the one that was taken with us. Your soul, my soul, have been purchased, have they not? By the one who has been given the throne of his father, David, Christ the king, the new sheriff in town. So I have another confession. This one goes back to the third grade. In third grade, I got into a fight. I got into a fight with a guy named Danny. And one of us had done something to the other. I'm sure it was his fault, but one of us did something to the other. And the line was, I'll meet you after school. You know, when you said that. I'll meet you after school. That was not for a kumbaya moment. It was for a fight. So we met in the playground after school, and we went at it just to serve by fists. 
pushing and shoving, swinging and hitting, wrestling on the ground. Well, in the middle of it all, who should come upon us but a service squad girl? Ugh. <laughs> service squad girls patrolled the hallways in the playground, and if they detected any poor behavior, they were to report such incidents to Mr. Barton. Mr. Barton, Mr. Barton taught sixth grade, and he was the unofficial disciplinarian of the school. He was the one who had the vested authority to enact justice. So the service squad girl told us that she was reporting us to Mr. Barton, which put us then into the Mr. Barton's justice system. Well, that was not anywhere where you wanted to be. Kids went to Mr. Barton, and you never saw them again. Mr. Barton made sixth grade boys cry. We, we begged her not to report us, but she held firm. She was going to Mr. Barton in the morning. It sure put an end to our fight. And so all night long, I'm beside myself about what's going to happen when I receive a visit from Mr. Barton. So the next day rolls around and we're in our classroom and Mr. Barton appears in the door and says, I need to see Steve McConnell and Danny McElroy out in the hall. So Dan and I go out to the hallway, and there stands Mr. Barton, and my eight-year-old life flashes in front of me. <laughs> Mr. Barton says, I want to know what happened yesterday, and I want the truth. Because we were so afraid, we actually told him the truth. <laughs> we actually gave corroborating stories, and after we told Mr. Barton the truth, he said, this is what I'm going to do, and we waited for the sentence of death. I'm going to ask you two men to shake hands and to say you're sorry, and I'm gonna ask you to promise me that you'll never fight again. We listened in disbelief. What was this? Was this our punishment? We expected justice and we got grace? We expected the hard hand of the law and we got another chance? Did Mr. Barton see souls in those two quivering boys? Did he see hope? Is that what justice is, grace, beget by hope? So we shook hands, we said we were sorry, and we promised Mr. Barton that we'd never fight again. Strange how I remember that story. Strange how Danny and I became best friends. Justice will rise like the sun on a cloudless morning gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Such is the dream of the old king, and such is the reign of the new king. The risk of 70 times seven, the forgiveness of a billion, and the hope that one by one another soul will be purchased Another soul will be given to God, and justice will be served.